linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And here we are at the beginning of 2009. At least that's uh, where we are today while I'm recording this podcast, but uh, the way podcasting works, uh, you might be hearing this sometime in the future, so uh, I hope I haven't caused anyone to think they're experiencing a flashback of some kind. (laughs) However, uh, flashing back to my last podcast, I I don't think I properly thank Miguel uh, Fernandez for providing the Terrence McKenna talk that I played. And uh, now he has done it again and uh, posted a rapid share link on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, uh, where you can download an MP3 version of uh, one of Terrence's last talks, uh, which he titled Psychedelics in the Age of Intelligence Machines. So thanks again, Miguel. Uh, we all really appreciate your help in getting this information out to a wider audience. And by the way, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Miguel joins us each week from Portugal, uh, a country that holds many fond memories for me uh, from my days in the corporate world when I'd get to visit on an expense account. (laughs) To tell the truth, I can uh, hardly remember any of the actual work I did while visiting Lisbon and Sintra and a few other wonderful places there. But uh, I sure do remember the people, the meals, the parties, uh, the nights of Fado and Port. uh, Wonderful times. And there are several uh, other people I'd like to thank today also. Uh, They are Wilma V. and Benjamin H., both of whom uh, sent in very generous donations this past week. And uh, thanks to Wilma, Benjamin, and uh, all of our other donors in the years past, I want to uh, thank you all from the very bottom of my heart for your love and support for these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. And for the talk we are about to hear, I'd also like to thank Dennis Berry and Bruce Damer, who, uh, along with the help of a lot of volunteers, preserved and digitized uh, much of the material from the uh, Dr. Timothy Leary archive, and then gave me copies to play here in the salon. And so I thought uh, we'd start 2009 off with uh, some more words of wisdom from the good doctor. As with uh, Terrence McKenna, When you hear uh, quite a few of his talks, you're going to hear some stories and content repeated. You know, after all, uh, McKenna and Leary uh, made their living by going from town to town and giving lectures. Uh, You know, that was back in the days before YouTube. Uh, Heck, it was uh, even before the web. And uh, so you really can't expect them to be able to uh, come up with 20 or more original raps every year or so. But uh, whenever it seems to get uh, repetitious, I'll just cut out any stories that we've heard several times, unless uh, they need to remain in for continuity, or, uh, as in the case of the talk we're about to hear, when the telling of a familiar story uh, it exceeds its original pinnacle. <laughs> in other words, uh, I just enjoyed hearing it again and thought you might too. Now, one of the things that struck me when I first heard this talk is that uh, about 30 minutes into it, uh, when Dr. Leary goes on about how the baby boomers could change history, and uh, I guess in a way they did, but uh, everything he says in this talk about that generation could also translate to the uh, young adults who are listening to podcasts like this one today. In fact, uh, if Timothy Leary were alive today, I'm sure that uh, it is the young to whom he would continue to speak most fervently, and uh, I doubt if his message would be much different from the one we're about to hear. So when he speaks directly to the baby boomers, uh, take it to heart yourself. 
because he may be talking directly to you, no matter what your age. Now, uh, as you listen to this 1983 talk that was given in Boulder, Colorado, try to pretend that you're a straight, Christian, God-fearing, law-abiding parent of a teenager that, uh, in this ultra-conservative town, uh, you just caught using LSD. Now, uh, as you pretend that you're a parent like that, uh, listen in wonder to the man who, at that particular time, or a little before that, was uh, called the most dangerous man in America. And uh, see if you can understand why some people truly thought of Dr. Timothy Leary in those terms. The topic of uh, uh, my talk tonight is the evolution of intelligence in species and individuals. And by individuals, I mean, of course, you and you and you and me. Now, I consider these two words, evolution and intelligence, to be uh, tremendously important terms. Uh, they are, have always been shrouded with, with uh, a little controversy. Indeed, uh, one of the great vicious debates that's been going on for the last hundred years has been about evolution. Uh, there are two theories of, of evolution that, are being, that have been held in this country. Uh, the, the Christian notion uh, of creation, and then the Darwinian theory of natural selection. I think both of these are kind of irrelevant, but um, it's interesting to see that um, uh, these are the theories of evolution held. I'm convinced that the theory of evolution you, you have is tremendously important because it's like your blueprint of, of, of what you think life's all about and how we got here and where we're going. It's your blueprint, of course, not just for, your, for life, but for humanity. Who are we and uh, where are we going? And even for yourself, uh, what chance do you have? Can you change or are you stuck here uh, with some um, static program? The, um, now, the, the biblical theory of evolution, which has been held for two, perhaps 3,000 years, well, I, I don't know if you're ready to have it summarized. It's pretty ding-a-ling. <laughs> According to Genesis, the theory of evolution that is, uh, that is held is that um, the whole thing was started somewhere around 4,000 years ago. Of course, that's when the Bible was written by shepherd poets. And uh, according to this theory, uh, everything, the universe, the stars, the planets, uh, Earth, was created by a man, naturally. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he's right out in front, not a very nice guy. He's mean and he's vengeful and he's dictatorial. He's like a mafia capo and he's definitely like a, a hard-hearted condominium owner. Um, <laughs> he created Adam and Eve, who are the first human beings, and said, uh, well, welcome to paradise, folks. Uh, Y'all can do anything you want here, except there are two food and drug regulations. See that tree there? Uh, you're forbidden to eat of that. That's called the tree of knowledge. <laughs> and you're forbidden to eat of the fruit of that, lest you become a god like me. And this tree over here is another controlled substance. Uh, 
if you eat of that, that's a tree of immortality, and the fruit thereof will allow you to live forever and be a god like me, and uh, I surely know you wouldn't want to do that. Then, uh, you know how the story went, it was uh, they kind of blamed it all on Eve. Uh, Adam was a pretty straight-arrow, crew-cut marine type, but there was that, <laughs> that naughty, hip-wiggling Eve that caused all the trouble. Uh, uh, they, you know the story, they ate of the fruit, and, and by gosh, it worked. Uh, it, was a, it was an intelligence-increased drug of some kind. Um, the, 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 the blinds fell from their eyes, and they began to see uh, through good and evil and so forth. And, uh, well, it, it didn't end happily, according to that theory of evolution. And, you know, the, uh, Jehovah heard about it, uh, came busting in, the sirens going, without a search warrant. It was the first narcotics bust in history. And um, because, talking about a hanging judge, um, because of this infringement of, uh, you know, eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, uh, humanity was condemned forever for original sin, as long as we're down here. It's, uh, the, the earth really is, as Gordon Liddy likes to say, a bad neighborhood. Um, and um, right from the beginning, we're, we're stuck with this uh, terrible crime and so forth. Um, well, I don't think that's a, a theory of evolution that is going to urge you to stand up tall and look to the stars and move into the 21st century with sense self of, of species confidence or a sense of confidence in the human uh, race or confidence in yourselves or America. I mean, it's a pretty, uh, it's a downer, let's face it. <laughs> now, uh, about 100 years ago, uh, another theory of evolution began percolating uh, in Europe and in England. It's the Darwinian theory of evolution. Um, I guess they were so... Uh, and kind of tired of, of an of a, of a all-powerful, planful, uh, bureaucratic, centralized Jehovah God that they said there's no plan whatsoever to evolution. It's blind chance. There's no meaning to it whatsoever. Well, that's kind of dreary, isn't it? When you get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror and realize it's just all an accident. Uh, uh, series of mutations, we'd all be... Unicellular creatures, except for glitches or errors in the system that uh, led to bigger and bigger and bigger males and bigger in claws and so forth. Uh, natural selection is a theory of real, it's kind of a barbarian power, very male, of course, uh, oriented theory. Now, I don't want to make too much fun of Darwin because Darwin, um, you know, we're all creatures of our time and place. Darwin lived in the height of the British Empire, late 19th century. It was not a, a very, although some wonderful things came out of that empire, um, it was not a very humanistic time to live. They were actually sending children, uh, tiny little children, uh, out into the mines uh, to, you know, mile underground to dig coal. There was a tremendous uh, difference between classes and so forth. The Darwinian theory of evolution is not only blind, it, it's pessimistic. There's nothing you can do about it. It was very comforting to the Bank of England and to the King of England. Um, so you just might as well relax and, um, um, of course, we can excuse Darwin. Darwin was living before Einstein, before Freud, before Walt Disney, uh, <laughs> before Jack Kerouac. <laughs> oh, um, but uh, sometime in the uh, early 19th, 20th century, and increasingly, there has been uh, developing a new theory of evolution um, in which it's suggested that there is a purpose to evolution. There is a blueprint. There is a plan. 
evolution is not blind chance, nor is evolution natural selection that's going to lead to bigger and uh, dinosaurs and uh, better armored-plated uh, uh, Reagan Andropov uh, submarines. Uh, the evolution of intelligence. Now, this is a very interesting idea. It means that um, the way not just to survive but to evolve is to get smarter. It's also quite optimistic. It, it suggests that maybe uh, you can look back at the history of evolution over the last 400 billion, 4 billion years and we can try to figure out how did she do it. By she, I mean Gaia, the biological intelligence, biological wisdom, DNA, I don't, God, I don't care what you call her. Um, but uh, obviously there seems to have been some intelligence at work and we seem to be evolving more intelligently. So let's look back at the track record and see how she did it, how she brought us from the Precambrian slime uh, to the high altitude of uh, Boulder, Colorado in just brief four billion years. Um, maybe if we can see how evolution worked in the past, we can then apply these tactics and methods uh, and techniques and strategies to our own life. And um, lo and behold, we can think about evolving ourselves. We can think of our own lives not as a static situation, but as a series of uh, evolutionary steps. Now, um, I haven't defined intelligence yet. Uh, intelligence, uh, I looked it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and believe it or not, intelligence is one of those words, I think, that's so powerful that it's, it's almost suppressed. Um, the the uh, Encyclopedia definition of intelligence is mainly about the Stanford Binet IQ test, which is, is not much help, is it? Um, um, the other use of intelligence, of course, is uh, CIA. You say, uh, I'm an intelligence agent. <laughs> you should think that if you went around saying you're an intelligence agent, that would be, you know, well, great. I'm glad to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Turn me on, you know. <laughs> Lift me up, you know. <laughs> But instead, uh, when you think of an intelligence agent, you think of uh, some spook uh, sanding axles behind the Iron Curtain or plotting to destabilize uh, Chile or Argentina or, or <laughs> Honduras or Nicaragua or can you keep them straight, you know. Uh, um, so uh, I am going to, I would prefer to define, if you want me to define intelligence very precisely and scientifically, uh, I'll be glad to do it in the question and answer periods. Uh, there's a lot of things to talk about tonight. It's my hope, it's my goal, it's my dream that together tonight we can uh, reawaken and renew ourselves and we can, uh, uh, through an inundation of facts and figures and scientific uh, findings and new models, which I hope to uh, spray you with and strobe you with tonight, uh, we can come out with a, uh, a sense of real, uh, precise, a navigation as to where we go next uh, in this very tricky paradoxical moment in human history. Uh, let's say, just for starters, though, that intelligence is like uh, compassionate wisdom which encourages growth. Well, I know that's almost tautological, that intelligence is something that... that uh, Evolution is something, is intelligence that helps you evolve. But all right, let's start with that. I am suggesting, of course, uh, that there's a scientific aspect to intelligence. Now, by science, I do not mean uh, IBM, Pentagon people with crew cuts uh, and mainframe computers <laughs> planning World War III. Uh, by science, uh, I mean uh, humanist science or or when I talk about intelligence, I mean humanist intelligence, or a word I like very much, pagan intelligence. Um, I think it's time to dust out the word pagan again. You know, uh, 
the word pagan uh, seems to mean um, one who who loves life. Uh, a pagan is someone who loves humanity and would never dream of uh, uh, oppressing humanity with original sins and other life sentences uh, which detract from um, self-esteem and, and courage and self-confidence. Uh, um, a pagan, by loving life, loves all forms of life, is ecologically sensitive and uh, uh, almost symbiotically intuitive as to how we have to share this planet um, with other forms of life. Above all, uh, I see a pagan scientist as one, or a pagan philosopher as one, who believes in evolution. Um, now, let's talk about some of the tactics that DNA or the biological intelligence has used to get us from the Precambrian slime to this wonderful place a mile high in Boulder, Colorado. The first concept, which uh, I think is one of the most interesting that biology has come up with recently, is the concept of juvenilization or neoteny uh, or pedamorphosis. Now, what these three complicated words mean is simply this. Evolution works only with the juveniles of a species. When you go home tonight, look up the dictionary definition of the word adult, and you will be amused and amazed to find that the word adult is the past participle of the verb to grow. In other words, an adult is someone who has stopped growing. An adult is that form of the species that has reached its final form. No more metamorphosis, no more mutation, no more change, final form. Now, there's one thing that uh, the biological wisdom does not like, it's final forms, because by the very definition, if we're into the evolutionary game, we want forms that can change. And of course, um, um, there's a lot of evidence uh, coming from, from every branch of biology now, which is indicating that um, when DNA wants things to change, she changes the younger model. See how this works is, um, by the way, when I talk about Gaia or biological intelligence, um, uh, I, I really do believe there is a genetic wisdom or a biological intelligence. Uh, I, I'll just give you a couple of examples. I could give you a hundred. Um, I live in, um, in Los Angeles, and uh, there's a big problem of the enroachment of condominiums and, and uh, housing and spread of humanity in Los Angeles County. The coyotes are in trouble. Uh, the, the ranges of the coyotes are becoming smaller and smaller. Now, what the coyotes do when, when they're in trouble is... Uh, They double the size of the litters, and they change the sex ratio of the litters from 50-50 to 3 to 1 female, obviously, so that they can produce more coyotes. Now, think about that for a minute. What's the intelligence there? What's that incredible survival evolutionary shrewdness that looks around and says, hey, we're kind of in trouble. You know, this neighborhood's getting unhealthy for us. <laughs> the tone of this neighborhood has gone down. All those people are moving in uh, and, and, and makes those changes in the, in the egg supply or the selection of X and Y chromosomes to produce the foxes. I could give you many examples of, of uh, this genetic intelligence. I'll give you another one, which is very relevant, by the way, to everyone in this room and every person who's grown up in the last uh, 20, 30 years in America. The salmon. Consider the salmon. Now, the typical salmon 
as you know, uh, is born in a, in a spawning pool somewhere miles up the Columbia and up a tributary, and there's a, a little smaller creek, and then there's a little pool, and there the salmon is born. Uh, usually the salmon uh, waits till uh, it's about age two, big, tough, wiry, grown-up uh, linebacker salmon, swims down the Columbia River out into the sea, where it uh, kind of maneuvers around a bit, and then uh, maybe a year later uh, makes that incredible uh, voyage up the river, uh, up the tributaries, up the small creeks to that little spawning pool, and then... Um, the female prepares a little nesting place, and the uh, male uh, releases his sperm over the cloud of the eggs. However, it comes as no surprise to you when I tell you that things have been a little hard on the salmon recently uh, because of uh, overfishing, commercial fishing in the uh, seas, because of pollution, and because of the increasing damming of rivers. It's harder and harder and harder, and fewer and fewer and fewer adult salmon are getting up to the spawning grounds. Okay, so your DNA intelligence, you know, you want to keep the salmon around. So what do you do? Well, here's what she did. She, she, she developed an amazing uh, process of, of juvenilization. When the big male salmon comes and they get into the mating posture, and when the cloud of female eggs is released, small, immature salmon call par. Dozens of them suddenly dart in and squirt their sperm over the um, uh, the eggs. Now, if you were a good, hard-working, tax-paying, middle-aged, moral majority salmon, how would you feel if all these kids suddenly zapped in? <laughs> well. From your standpoint, you might be a little ticked off, but from the standpoint of the species, you see, uh, DNA is preparing because uh, the most important thing is to keep the, the, the experiment going. So juvenilization means that, uh, well, uh, final forms are dangerous, and it's well known uh, anthropologically and um, uh, morphogenetically that the human being, in a sense, is a... We, we were not descended from chimpanzees or apes, we are teenage juvenile chimps or apes that didn't grow up and develop tails and swing around in, in trees. Uh, the skull of a, of a human baby and a chimp baby is pretty much the same, but um, we, we, if you know what happens to the skull of a, of a chimp, uh, in, every, in many aspects, the human species is an immature species. We haven't committed ourselves to a final form, and therein perhaps lies our great usefulness to, uh, to the DNA code and the biological wisdom. Um, the dinosaurs. What happened to the dinosaurs? Please listen, Henry Kissinger, Andropov, and, and uh, President Reagan. The dinosaurs got bigger and bigger and bigger. They thought size and they thought strength uh, was the important. Pretty soon they got so unwieldy they were kind of thrashing around in the swamp and um, got to that point where DNA realized, hey, we can't go on with this experiment much longer. <laughs> so she said to the younger generation, hey, <laughs> look at them over there. You know, there's Nixon and there's Reagan and Kissinger and <laughs> Brezhnev. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to, let's drop out of that, huh? Um, and from, that's actually how the avian or bird species develop. I think you've uh, made the point, and I'm going to come back to it, but step number one, if you want to increase your intelligence, if you want to evolve and grow and go through the changes, the many changes that are possible, uh, 
at all costs, avoid terminal adulthood. Or to put it differently, um, uh, keep yourself rejuvenalized in every way possible. And I'm going to give you uh, many practical ways of doing that. And a matter of fact, in our seminar Saturday Sunday, I'm going to go through 24 stages of, of rejuvenalization and, and discuss in great detail. There's another technique, though, that um, a tactic that uh, the evolutionary strategy uses, and that's migration. Now, uh, if you stay in the same place, uh, you, you, you tend, obviously, not to be exposed to new challenges, and uh, you, uh, you're not going to be uh, stu- under pressure to grow. Although it's well known, though, that if you migrate, if you want to change, if you want to grow, if you want to develop, if you want to reach a higher level, uh, standard uh, genetic tactic uh, and a standard human tactic is to migrate to a new frontier where you have a chance to, to develop and grow. Um, You know, we've been through this before. We've been at this migration of uh, evolution of intelligence business for a long time. Uh, You remember, don't you, when we were all amoebas, the the Precambrian slime? That was a pretty successful uh, way of life, but uh, it got to be pretty boring. Uh, So... uh, when things got too crowded, overpopulated, it's always a time to, to evolve. And DNA took a young generation of amoebas, and um, they began hanging around shallow pools, ingesting a, a dangerous mutational drug called calcium. Now, you remember the AMA, that's the Amoeba Medical Association. And <laughs> calcium, totally dangerous. You don't let your kids eat calcium because they'll grow bones. Head, tail, of scenery, they'll leave, leave home. They'll migrate. Uh, uh, and anyway, it's, it's, it's immoral. <laughs> if God had intended amoebas to grow bones, you would not have made calcium illegal. <laughs> then um, we presumably we got to the fish stage, and um, the fish stage is very interesting. It's sort of mobility. Uh, better forms of communication, uh, a more complex nervous system. But then uh, it got a little bloody, and uh, some fish began, younger fish began, from, gee, I want to stay here fighting the dolphins versus the sharks versus the barracudas. They began hanging around shorelines. They actually got up in the shoreline and began uh, looking at the sun and, and sniffing, tooting a very dangerous drug called oxygen. Well, I mean... The FDA, that's the Fish Drug Administration. (laughs) Well, no, in fact, oxygen is a lethal drug. And the um, sophisticated young uh, fish said, uh, no, man, uh, cut it with nitrogen, and uh, it's great. (laughs) Well... um, I, I could go on right through the whole uh, series of evolutionary steps. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we were all mammals, and then suddenly uh, someone realized that uh, the, the great evolutionary advance is to the higher you are, you know, the better you are, began climbing trees and looking down at the, at the mammals fighting their four-foot territorial thing. And uh, from uh, the first uh, 
primitive uh, primates. They learned how to uh, communicate at a distance. They learned binocular vision. They learned to free their hands. They learned to, uh, that led to, um, led to what? The, the trajectory of evolution, as we look at the history of four billion years on this planet, it seems quite clear that the, the blueprint of evolution is um, higher, faster, better forms of communication, uh, better forms of linkage or, uh, or, or social relationships. Um, so that uh, there's a clear directory to um, to evolution, and when I said that migration is one of the ways of of uh, evolving yourself, uh, that's simply saying mobility is nobility. And if you um, you know uh, if you don't like it where you are, don't blame your parents or don't blame the government. Uh, try moving. Um, how many? Boulder, how many Colorado natives are there in this room? It's pretty good. Uh, you, you came here, your parents came here because this was a place, it was a wild frontier, and uh, uh, we're, all, we're all descendants of wonderful, itchy-footed uh, migratory people. Uh, another, there's another tactic or another clue to the evolution of intelligence, uh, and this is a pretty new idea. This is the hot innovative idea in biological science today. Um, it's generational consciousness. Now, uh, the theory is that just as where you're born you're, determines a great deal about how you grow up, if you were born in the Shiite section of Tehran, that's the Ayatollah section, you're going to grow up differently from someone that lives in the Sunni neighborhoods of Tehran. Or if you're brought up in uh, Rome, you're going to be you're different than someone that was brought up in Tehran. Um, the generational notion is that when you were born is equally important, that those that are born at the same time share the same relative history. So if, you were, if, you're, if your generation was born um, at a time when there was uh, plenty and affluence, uh, those great moments in history, like in Egypt, uh, perhaps Athens uh, during the uh, third, second century, fifth, fourth century uh, BC, uh, those exciting times, uh, that was a wonderful time to be born. If you were born at a time when, uh, as you got to be a parent, there was uh, a war and your, your side lost, everyone in your generation group shares these, uh, these tragedies or these victories or these stimulations. Uh, uh, and, uh, matter of fact, the two most important things to know about yourself or anyone else um, these days, according to this theory, would be your zip code and your year of birth. And in... Uh, or even better yet, the the three uh, numbers in the prefix of your telephone direct, you know, telephone number and your date of birth. People born in the same generation share an unspoken sense of reality that uh, throughout the country, throughout the world, you know, young people in um, in Hong Kong and in Singapore and even in Moscow and even in Warsaw, Poland, you know, wanted to put on blue jeans and play rock and roll. Why? Because they sensed that was a generational stimulation uh, that was shared by everyone that was born after 1946. Uh, now, in the past, this concept of generation or generational 
consciousness was not important because who cared if you were living in a village in the Middle East or uh, in a slow-moving, feudal uh, civilization or society? didn't make much difference. Uh, you were born. Uh, you grew up like your parents. Um, um, juvenilization wasn't necessary because DNA uses juvenilization, uh, mutation and change in the young, only when there's a challenge that the old way can't face. So... Uh, this brings me to what I consider to be, and many other demographers and evolutionary theorists believe to be, the most amazing and important events, certainly in American history, if not in human history. I refer to an extraordinary phenomenon that happened in America, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand between the years 1946 and 64. I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. In these 18 years, the birth rate in America doubled. Now, you just don't go around doubling birth rates. There's a genetic meaning. There's a significance here. Uh, it, it totally fooled the demographers. They expected in all uh, industrial countries, the birth rates had been declining. They expected right after World War II, they'd be boom, boom, the soldiers would come home, and there'd be a little jump in the birth rate. And then they, they, they expected 36 million Americans born between these 18 years. Instead, 76 million. That's 40 million more than we expected. They simply don't release 40 million more minds, bodies, mouths, souls, uh, twice the number you expected on a country without you know, enormous impact. And the, the, the last 50 years of the 20th century in this country are simply the history of the baby boom moving like a pig through a python. Uh, uh, <laughs> through American culture. I mean, uh, now, not, not only do we have to double the, the, the diaper factories and the, to the baby powders, you know, to powder uh, 40 million more little soft bottoms, we had to double the nursery schools, we had to double the uh, primary schools, we had to, my, uh, immediately, American, American enterprise and uh, advertising caught on. Phew. This generation is twice the consuming power, so immediately we had Davy Crockett hats, and we had Breakfast of Champions for you, and uh, we had Pepsi-Cola, because you're a champ, and because uh, you're the best, you should have the best kind of uh, genes, you know, uh, um, uh, as, the, as this generation, oh, not only is this generation, your generation, um, those born between 46 and 64, not only are you twice as big, right from the beginning, you were trained to be different. Number one, you keep the first generation after Hiroshima. You were the first generation born with that knowledge in your blood, in your bones, that there could never be another great, wonderful Georgie Patton World War. You were the first generation that was exposed to television. When you crawled out of the, of the crib, you began dialing into new realities. By the time you were... By the time you were five, you'd seen more realities, more perceptions, more... You had that whole concept of turning on and turning off, switching channels, that you'd experience more than the most affluent, well-traveled sultans and philosophers of the past. The most complicated thing about this generation, you were the Dr. Spock kids. Demand feeding. That Dr. Spock. The right-wingers are right. He totally undermined uh, the Eisenhower system.
treat kids as individuals. Encourage them to be different. Give them self-confidence. Listen to what they have to say. You know the terrible, terrible litany of humanistic uh, uh, theories that Dr. Spock uh, laid upon we parents who were bringing you baby boomers up. Now, in the late 60s and early 70s, the baby boom generation, 76 million strong, sweeping through American society like an avalanche, like a tidal wave, hit high school and college. Wow. What you did. There's never been a revolution like it in human history. Like a, like a tsunami wave, you changed every aspect of American culture. At the height of American empire, Henry Luce and uh, President Eisenhower and uh, the Dulles and the CIA controlling everything and 76 million Dr. Spock baby boomers, you know, uh, you didn't want that cheap black and white war. <laughs> uh, you didn't want to be rushed off into the draft. You, 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 you were trained to look within and to, to you know, to, to appreciate your individuality. You didn't want the old hypocritical sexual mores. Um, uh, you changed the, the educational system. Uh, you, um, you, uh, you definitely wanted, uh, as, as, as uh, demand feeders, you wanted better drugs. <laughs> you were not going to settle for dry martinis on the rocks. Uh, you were called heads, which is interesting because you were the first uh, emissaries or the first uh, messengers of the um, of what's called the Information Society. And I, I definitely believe in Alvin Toffler and uh, John Naisbitt, who, who tell us that we're moving from an industrial society in which uh, conformity and mass assembly lines and uh, that sort of thing, where we're basically where work is, is important, we're moving into the information society, and you were brought up on television, you were brought up to be heads, uh, you were brought up to think, you were brought up to be, to deal with information. You've been inundated, you've been fed, you've been incredibly uh, indulged with information all the way through your history, and of course, uh, you want more, you're really addicted to information, and uh, you're going to get it. <laughs> Now, um, you, you, you change the musical styles, you change the, uh, the um, uh, dress styles, uh, you, you develop the concept quality of life, uh, you develop the concepts of, uh, of levels of consciousness and expansion of consciousness, uh, you developed uh, the notion, or you reawakened, really, the notion, the basic American notion, the Jeffersonian notion, that... Um, of individual potentiality. Ralph Waldo Emerson going to Harvard and getting kicked out in 1838 because he said, look within, find God within. God's not in those big uh, Unitarian and uh, congregational churches in, in Boston. Uh, the divine spark is within and drop out to be self-reliant. Think for yourself. Uh, it's the American way. So that the, the, the baby boom generation, I see it as an awakening of the glorious American traditions of... Uh, of, um, of uh, Looking within, Socrates said it, the unexamined, you know, the function of human life is to grow, develop, become intelligence. Intelligence is equated to, uh, to virtue and wisdom. Uh, then what happened? And I think this is very instructive for the intelligent evolution of all of us in this room. Um, what happened to... To the wild 60s and early 70s, did, did, did people suddenly become conservative? Uh, 
Well, um, no, I don't think so. I, I spend a great deal of my time uh, going around to colleges. I go 30, 40 colleges lecture, college lectures a year. Uh, I spend a lot of time listening to, um, to um, uh, young people. As a matter of fact, I've developed uh, a theory of generational migration. Just if you find yourself in Ireland, uh, where people are still fighting Catholics versus Protestants, and you want to get out, migrate to Europe. If you find yourself in, the, in Boston, where uh, the ethnic groups are still fighting with each other, migrate to Boulder or to, migrate to, to California. The same thing is true. The same thing is true, my friends, of your generation. If you find yourself in a generation that, uh, you know, is pretty stuffy, migrate. <laughs> a generation is an island in time. A generation is like a, is like a big school of fish moving through time. You, you, you can migrate uh, temporally. You can migrate from one generation to another. Now, I personally, to give you an example of this, uh, I spend about 60... <laughs> <laughs> Busted again. <laughs> Is that Big Brother or what? <laughs> I spend about 60% of my time these days with baby boomers, pe people between the ages of 18 and 36. And uh, I learn so much. Uh, I spend about 30% of my time with whiskeys those born after 1964. I spend about 10% of my time with uh, old-timers, part of my original generation. See, I've definitely migrated from the old turf. Uh, but occasionally, like, you know, a successful Sicilian who's opened a pizza parlor, uh, <laughs> I go back to Italy, I go back to the old village and talk to the old-timers. I can talk old-timer. I can talk about World War II. I was in it. <laughs> I can talk about alcohol prohibition in the 20s and how wonderful it was because I was brought up for the first 12 years of my life seeing alcohol in my house as, a, as an abused, dangerous, illegal drug. So, oh sure, I, can, I, can, uh, I think it's wonderful. And when I, when I say age is everything and generational consciousness is everything, I don't mean to say, you know, don't trust anything, anyone over 30. That's a dumb thing to say because uh, we're all going to get over 30. Uh, I'm not even going to say don't trust anyone born um, before 1946 because, uh, you know, don't believe anyone that tells you, you know, anything dogmatic like that. But this notion of uh, uh, you're as old as the generation you hang out with is so wonderful. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the whiz kids, and this is probably the most profound thing that you baby boomers have done. See, here's a question I want to pose to you. How come... The birth rate, which had doubled for 18 years, dropped in 64. Well, if you believe, as I do, that, you know, DNA kind of watching things, and there's a reason for this, um, or many reasons. The first obvious reason is that by 1964, the first wave of the baby boomers were hitting young adulthood, when naturally they were expected by society to breed blindly, you know. <laughs> Keep your legs crossed until you're married, and then you get in there and breed. It's been going on for 4,000, 25,000 years. Um, you were the first generation, you see why? Well, number one, you were, you were demand-fed. 
You're used to selecting. So you weren't going to you, you weren't going to eat blindly, and you weren't going to uh, uh, go to war blindly. So naturally, you weren't going to breed like animals. You were the first generation of human history that bred consciously. Uh, for one reason, because you had the pill, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is that um, you, you've got the concept of, uh, of uh, life as a wonderful growth scenario. And uh, the average baby boom couple uh, you know, had to make the decision, well, um, um, shall we have a baby or shall we uh, go around the world? Or shall we have a baby or shall we uh, buy a house? Or shall we uh, have a baby or buy a Porsche? Or... Uh, <laughs> Shall we have a baby, or uh, will the wife or husband go through medical school, or dental school, or law school? That, that notion of, uh, of self-confident, intelligence choice, options, that you're, you're uh, compassionately and uh, precisely in charge of your life. You're not a victim of, uh, of uh, these, these, these forces of the past. So that the baby boomers bred consciously. Well, what that means is that the kids of the baby boomers are like no generation. And if you've spent any time uh, with kids born after 64, you know whereof I talk. We're talking here about the Spielberg kids. We're talking about the heroes of E.T. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a subversive movie that was, huh? <laughs> the, the only adult, well, there are two nice adults in the movie, the, the mother and uh, then that the scientists who were members when he was a kid, all the rest of the adults were, were portrayed as kind of you know, well-meaning bumblers. And that's the best you can say about Washington, D.C., huh? <laughs> Take back well-meaning. Um, it was no accident when in the countries of uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, they banned E.T. for kids under 12. Did you know that? Rightly so, because they said E.T., instills or, or, or encourages disrespect for adults. Right on. <laughs> because uh, intelligent, intelligent disrespect for adults is juvenilization, the number one key of the evolutionary code. That's how we are here instead of being dinosaurs. The young, the young dinosaurs had that ability to, to say, hell no, we won't go. So I spend about... Uh, 30% of my time with uh, whiz kids. Uh, this uh, includes my 9-year-old son, my uh, 11 and 12-year-old grandchildren. They teach me computers. They teach me video games. They teach me uh, more than that. A... Incredible sophistication. Uh, I'm not the first person to tell you that uh, just as the baby boomers are by far the most sophisticated, experienced, intelligent, uh, realistic, because that's the bottom line on the baby boom generation, realistic, after what you guys have been through, <laughs> you're, you're pretty practical. But the whiz kids are extraordinarily sophisticated, as you know, and many moralists are upset about the fact that uh, the new television series all show these little whiz kids uh, as uh, very, very suave uh, uh, sophisticates and adults being kind of like bumblers. Uh, now, there's a reason for that. Uh, I study very carefully the uh, behavior of the whiz kids because, uh, like it or not, they're, they're going to write our future. I was very interested, for example, in um, the fact, oh, I love war games, didn't you? <laughs> Two 14-year-old kids that, uh, um, uh, you know, stopped World War III. Um, I I'm very interested in, in, for example, the video games. I think that um, 
the popularity of video games, the fact that video game, video arcade games in this country uh, generate $7 billion a year. That's money coming mainly from whiz kids. $7 billion a year. That's more money that President Reagan and NASA spend on the real stuff. <laughs> now, this is discouraging as far as the old-timers are concerned, but it's very encouraging when, it, when you realize that these kids are going to, naturally, they're going to zoom around in space. Uh, I'm, I was very interested. I hang around video arcades and, and, and whiz kids to find out what they're thinking and, and what they're doing because there's a meaning there. The video arcade games are like the fairy tales. They're the legendary myths of the new generation. Let me give you an example. If you know what to look for, you're going to find it. The first big arcade video game and home video game success that, that made more money than probably the top five or ten to hit super status, number one on Billboard's top uh, ratings, you know what it was? Was Donkey Kong. Definitely mammalian. <laughs> poor, poor, uh, poor Mario, you know, this uh, big... Grill has taken his girl, and he's climbing, he's jumping, and he's hitting. It's definitely, uh, you know. Uh, then the third game, I mean, it's amazing how this worked. The third, after about another year, the third game to hit number one was Donkey Kong Jr., in which Donkey Kong Jr. is a primate, swinging and jumping and leaping from tree to tree. And there's poor Mario, uh, you know, the mammal coming around, so that uh, I see a direct evolutionary sequence. Now, uh, it's interesting, too. Uh, young girls uh, like uh, different games than young boys. Um, girls like Centipede. Guess why? <laughs> well, Centipede is like this huge spermatozoa. <laughs> and uh, Miss Eggs shoots down the ones she doesn't like. And uh, if one gets through, then... <laughs> 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 Well, I like the game, too. <laughs> okay, let me talk for about five or ten more minutes, and then let's take a break and stretch, and then come back, and I'd like to stay as long as we can. I'd really like to talk with you and hear your ideas and, and any questions you have, and we can get into more detailed stuff about... I'm not going to talk about dope here, now. If you want to talk about dope later, I will. Uh, there's a lot happening. Uh, uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, kind of, we've taken a very quick review of evolution from, uh, we were amoebas and then we end up now in this room um, in Boulder, Colorado in 1983. Um, you know, there's a lot to be depressed about if you look around the planet Earth. Uh, I, I think... Uh, Evolution got a setback in 1980 when uh, Ronald Reagan got elected president. Number one, Ronald Reagan's age. Now, um, again, I I'm, I'm very compassionate because I'm a pagan and I love all human beings and it's my job to try to turn them on and to make them feel better and to relieve paranoias and tensions and so forth. And I'd love to be able to talk to Ronald Reagan and suggest that he and Nancy spend like, uh, well, maybe 50% of their time with baby boomers and only 10% of the time with whiz kids. But you know that Ronnie and Nancy never hang out with anyone, anyone except uh, old timers, cold warriors. The only baby boom member 
of the uh, Nixon administration, I mean the Reagan administration, was poor old Stockton. And you know what they did to him? He took him into the woodshed and he gave him a spanking, quote unquote. Uh, you know why? Because he told the truth about the budget. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, uh, I, I really feel that the, um, the, uh, the, the Jimmy Carter, I'm going to really go on a limb here, but the Jimmy Carter administration was a great step forward. And I think history will see that Jimmy Carter uh, was a wonderful president, except he couldn't get it together. Uh, you know, he was for... He was for human rights. He was a very compassionate man. He 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 he, he filled his staff with young people. All those uh, young guys from they were stealing hubcaps in Atlanta, and suddenly they're running the White House. Uh, and, uh, they were really they were really uh, wonderful people. The problem was they were dealing with the most dinosaur, uh, wheelchair, uh, elephantine, backward-looking organization in North American continent, the Congress and Senate of the United States. And those cold-blooded mothers made mincemeat out of the poor kids. No more singing Bob Dylan and having blue jeans in the White House, boy. We're going to show you. We're not, we don't want no more of this youth stuff. Don't talk to us about human rights. They really sabotage poor Jimmy Carter. Um, so now we have the Reagan administration. Well, I'm very compassionate, and uh, uh, I don't want to. Uh, and what I say now is uh, more to make you laugh. Uh, I don't want to raise any uh, negative feelings here, but I must say I feel that the, Re the, the Republican Party is, forms an iron triangle with the weapons manufacturers and the military in this country. And there's no denying that. And what they have done in the last uh, two and a half years is to uh, you know, uh, just make the manufacture and distribution of weapons a national obsession. Uh, I feel that the, the men who r run the Republican Party, the real guys behind the scenes, are mean, male, macho, pre-adolescent, pre-sexual, locker room, jockstrap, mean people. <laughs> now, I'm not coming out for the Democrats here, I mean... How about Tip O'Neill? Huh? <laughs> the Democrats are classically uh, compassionate. They're for the young people. They're for the minorities. But they, they, the, the thing is age. See, and poor Tip O'Neill is blundering and bumbling. He's probably got a good heart and so forth. He's not, most Democrats are kind of nice guys. They might steal a little, but uh, they're not going to steal the country from you. <laughs> uh, so, um, but they're old. Age is the key. Age is the key to, uh, to politics. Now, in the, uh, in the 1960s and early 70s, we, we had the term turn on, tune, and drop out. Drop out, of course, didn't mean smoke marijuana and play Sgt. Pepper day and night. <laughs> I mean, one week and drop out of that. Huh? I mean, come on. Uh, uh, drop out meant think for yourselves, don't follow leaders, get off the assembly line, self-reliance, uh, change. Evolve, change, yeah. Um, but you could not much you could do. The baby boomers couldn't do anything. They had buying power, but you didn't have any. You, you stopped the country, you stopped the war, you changed the education system. M m 
Have you forgotten, you know, what it was like in the 60s? There was that actual war between the police and the long hairs. Remember that? That any young person driving on the highway would get automatically busted for suspicion of being young. Do you remember that? Uh, of course, that ended. You know why? Because uh, the new generation of cops were young. <laughs> um, okay. The, um, it looks pretty bad in 1983 uh, when, you, when you realize that... Um, the Reagan administration and the men who have been running the CIA and running our foreign policy since 1946, since World War II, are obsessed with their fear and competitive jealousy of the Russians. You know, I hear Gordon Liddy standing on platforms. I've heard him 20 times complaining that we don't have a big enough CIA, that the KGB is 10 times bigger. <laughs> I mean... Don't you think that's ridiculous? <laughs> um, the, the men in the Reagan administration, the coal warriors, have, have, and of course, the Russians are worse, ten times worse, but they're obsessed. All they do is they see every country in the world either belongs to Russia or to us. And uh, if they belong to us, we send the poor, poor guys guns. And if they belong to the Russians, or we think they do, we do everything in our power to destabilize stabilize them. The Russians are doing the same thing. International terrorism, the Russians sick Libya and Chad. I mean, uh, this, my friends, the Russian government and the American foreign policy and the American State Department, the American Pentagon are guilty of behavior which any civilized uh, uh, society or in the future, the 21st century, will look back upon this Cold War as not only barbarism, uh, species suicide, but Speaking as a, as, a, as a clinical psychologist who's written two books on personality diagnosis, I can constantly label the behavior of these uh, cold warriors as certifiably lunatic. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to leave you with this one notion. It's the notion that I have been laying out for the last 23 years of my public life, uh, um, and it's um, the American tradition, the intelligent evolutionary tradition, is, has always been intelligent skepticism of authority. You know, and I know, that the big S, the big systems, whether it's labor, government, whether it's uh, Air Force, the Army, the FBI, the CIA, whether it's the churches, I don't care, the big systems operate for one purpose, to keep themselves in power. And they have no interest in patriotism. They, the, the Army would lose a war any time rather than give up their own power or give up any of their power to the Navy. Um, as you probably know, the worst enemies of the FBI are not the mafia or the communists, it's the CIA, I'm sure you know that. Or the local police. <laughs> but, uh, um, so um, I have to close every little <laughs> meeting like this with a, with a reminder that uh, throughout human history, those in power have been wrong 99% of the time. They laughed at Columbus when he said the world was round. They crucified Jesus Christ. I don't have to get down there. When Galileo said, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, we went around the sun, they busted him. They burned Gal uh, Bruno at the stake. The long history of, uh, you know, of, uh, of errors on the part of those in power, you know, is, 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 is 99% uh, predictable. Why? Because they don't give a damn. They just want to keep themselves in power. Um, there's no question, though, 
that the baby boom generation understands this. I think you're the first generation in human history that are realistic enough to realize that we can't have, we can't run a government with partisan politics. We can't have a spaceship Earth or even the United States or even one state of this country uh, with two weirdos like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in the in the pilot cabin fighting over who's going to and uh, if we're if, if we're losing gas, well, if it's a Democrat in power, good. The Republicans, right? Uh, that's the way that system operates. We can't do that anymore. And I know your generation, all the polls show that you certainly are skeptical of Republicans and Democrats and donkeys and elephants. Indeed, you're skeptical of all those old systems. We are actually, in spite of the grim things we see around us, we're in the golden age of human history here in America. We are going to lay down a model for the rest of the world because that's our duty and obligation to do that. Uh, yeah. It's true. There are a lot of problems in this country. Uh, proliferation of nukes, uh, nuclear pollution, uh, the tremendous discrepancy, the growing discrepancy between uh, the haves and the has-nots, the terrible racial problem which hasn't gone away. Uh, worst of all, worst is the loss of hope, the erosion of the American dream of, uh, of progress and uh, the American confidence that we can, uh, through democracy and openness and good humor, can show the rest of the world how to go. Yeah, there are a lot of things to be concerned about. However, the fact that we're aware of these issues uh, is good because they existed 100 years ago and nobody cared. Uh, I go around the country a lot, and I want to give you some good news. There are at least... 20, possibly 30 million Americans, most of them young, but some older, who are, I want to be scientifically precise here, reasonably enlightened. Ah, they're not Buddhas yet. <laughs> but they've been through a lot. They understand about multiple reality. They basically understand about you've got to really... Get your own act together. They're not expecting society or the Democratic Party to take care of them. They understand, you know, that, that we've got to work together. They're basically good humor. They're basically tolerant about sex and about um, they give everyone a chance. This generation, they're, they're just an enormous minority of really great people out there. And in 1988, uh, the baby boomers are going to take over. All you have to do is look around and understand your power. Uh, and the golden age, which we're now in, is going to go platinum. Are you ready for that? Okay. Let's take a break for 10 minutes. <laughs> we're getting very precise. The question has to do with the... Um, something I wrote a few years ago, I think it was in Intelligence Agents, where I talked about the geography is destiny, uh, habitat determines species. Um, if, you, uh, if you live underwater, you're either a, a fish or a dolphin or a scuba diver. <laughs> um, and the question has to do with the... with the, uh, the distinctions between Boulder and uh, Berkeley and uh, Los Angeles as, and, and Seattle. Well, I think that uh, Boulder and this area of the country, Aspen, and even running down this kind of a magical, even down to maybe even Santa Fe, there's a special little... Uh, 
seen going on in this area. Um, I think there are people that got uh, flying in from New York and saw the Rockies and decided to drop down for a while and found that, uh, in truth, this is one of the most beautiful places to live on the planet and uh, have taken advantage of that. Um, here, just as at the Iron Triangle of the Republican Party and the weapons manufacturers in the Pentagon, there's a cosmic triangle of Santa Cruz, Santa Fe, and Boulder. <laughs> uh, I think these are very valuable outposts, and I see uh, these cities or communities as probes. Uh, uh, San Francisco is an extraordinary experiment. It's without any question the most uh, liberated uh, uh, city in the world. It's a city, and uh, it's probably the only city west of the Rockies because, as you know, most of the uh, urban situations or, or population centers west of the Rockies are almost like space colonies. There's no Los Angeles. There's 30 or 40 little enclaves around Los Angeles. Uh, and um, uh, that experiment, which developed in the industrial age of popping everyone in big uh, high-rises like New York City and Paris and London and, and Chicago, I think this experiment is over and uh, that we're not going to develop new uh, high-rise New York cities west of the Rockies. San Francisco is a, um, uh, I spent a lot of my life there, and I think it's a wonderful place. I think L.A. is the communications center of the world right now. I think it's obvious that the movies are made there. The, most of the music comes out of there, the television. Uh, a lot of the, of course, the computers, the Silicon Valley, and, and we certainly have to mention that as an outpost of, uh, of, uh, of evolution. Um, there's no such thing as L.A., really. There's, there's really more Hollywood and, and uh, that, that Burbank and that, that constellation of communication system. I live down there because um, I, I think that the job of a philosopher today is to be a communicator. And I think that if Aristotle and Plato lived today, they'd, ha they'd, they'd have their own talk shows. Um, uh, because um, we are the information age. We are the age of intelligence and communication. And we're just as we live not just on air and uh, and uh, water and food, information now is the very stuff. It's the very uh, food of uh, anyone that wants to evolve. And uh, I uh, I try to do my best in in, in Hollywood to encourage uh, people to make uh, positive movies about the future instead of negative soap operas about the past. And uh, uh, does that I, I ramble because I don't have a clear answer to your question. I spend as much time as possible in all three places. Oh, Seattle. Seattle is a, is a very interesting place. It's very big on space. Uh, Seattle people tend to be a little damp, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and there is a feeling in Seattle, uh, they kind of resent California, uh, which uh, I think they don't have to. I think it's, it's a, I think... Uh, and, and Oregon is a wonderful state, too. A very high percentage of enlightened uh, people in Oregon. I used to say that um, <laughs> the Greenwich hours are not hours, but centuries. And when you went from, from, uh, from Pacific time to uh, Eastern time, it's 300 years. 
<laughs> and when you go nine hours to London and Paris, boy, you're really going nine, 900 years. But um, that's, that's getting like any generalization. It, it gets, you have to drop out. It's too static. Uh, the idea is mobility. The idea is to, to move and keep changing and uh, don't feel – it's nice to have roots, but it's also nice to feel that you have um, uh, outposts and uh, uh, networks. That's, it's getting networking. And, and also as we move in the information age um, – Territory, that old mammalian notion of territory, is going to be less important because uh, the electronic cottage, uh, I belong to a computer network now, and we can tap out messages to the modem, and uh, uh, so that, um, and as we move into space, uh, uh, territory is going to be less, uh, uh, less crucial. Um, earlier you mentioned Kerouac and Burroughs and the Beat Generation. I was wondering, in terms of generational consciousness, where did they come from? Because it was the late 40s, and they were already grown men. And how, you know, in terms of what you said, where did they come from? How did they materialize? Well, I think in every generation, uh, there is a certain percentage of people that are wired and geared to be uh, innovators, to be artists, or to be frontier people. The Bohemians, the Romantics, the poets, the uh, free thinkers. There's this long tradition. The Beatniks come from that tradition. They came along. Uh, of course, let's see. Uh, in the 50s, they were kind of young men, Kerouac. They were in their 20s. And uh, they looked around at Eisenhower and at uh, Howdy Doody and, uh, <laughs> you know, squeaky clean stuff. And um, uh, they started or they went back to this, this tradition of uh, protest and rebellion and uh, romantic individualism. And uh, they were the first steps which led to, I think, the 60s and the 70s and the, the whiz kids. Uh, did that make sense? Yeah. Were they like a subculture within the generational consciousness? Do you see what I'm getting at? Rather than, because they were, the, the large generational consciousness was 50s, Eisenhower, but yet they were at the same time, and yet they were, and they were part of that generation, but yet they were different. So they like, like a subspecies within the... Yes, you see, the, the, the generation before the baby boom, and it's Kerouac, Ginsburg, I, uh, I'm a little older, uh, uh, Neil Cassidy, uh, the, the Beatniks, they came from a very small gene pool because they were kind of depression kids, and uh, they, there weren't many of them. And so they didn't have that enormous demographic sense of, of 76 million of them. They were, they were kind of outcasts, and they were living in garrets, and they were uh, living in the North Beach and in the east, Lower East Side of New York, uh, carrying on the, the old bohemian tradition of, uh, of consciousness and uh, protest and rebellion. I honor them tremendously, and I think they, uh, they, made, they, they kept the, the thing going. Tim, you talked once about the possibility that DNA chains have massed segments which at evolutionary, evolutionarily appropriate moments become unmasked and cause a kind of quantum leap in evolution. And uh, I think I heard you kind of imply that you felt there might be some kind of design to that, kind of a plan to uh, which segments were masked and kind of the appropriate timing of the unmasking. Could you say something more about that? Yes, yeah, so is the question clear? Uh, I believe that the human DNA code has expressed probably no more than half of its potential. I think the human species right now 
is a very juvenile species. I think that we've got a lot of stages to go through, just as a five-year-old doesn't realize that it's, you know, it's going to be a 16-year-old. And uh, uh, I think that our, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that there are, uh, that there are large areas of the DNA code that they, that are, they don't understand yet. Remember, they, they, the, the old scientists, they're so pessimistic. They talk about junk DNA. Instead of saying DNA that we're not smart enough to figure out. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in, in the, um, uh, those of you that read my books and in, in the workshops on, on starting Sunday, we're going to go into the, uh, the future stages of human evolution. I, I think I can predict uh, the next uh, eight or nine stages, inevitable stages in human evolution. And then it becomes our challenge and our opportunity to uh, gear ourselves up personally to uh, to enjoy it and contribute to the next stages of evolution. Yeah. I just read your autobiography, and it was really uh, inspiring to me, being a 36-year-old uh, on the cusp, so to speak. And I wanted to ask you about... Uh, if you if you'll address this about Kennedy and what you think happened there with him and this woman that you talked about, Mary Pinchon. Yeah. Well, for those of you that haven't read the book, obviously you should. <laughs> if you want to pass uh, uh, Boulder One A. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, um, my book is a it's a. It's not just a personal narrative, um, but it's also a kind of a history of the 60s and 70s, and uh, I was lucky enough to be involved with some of the uh, most important events, cultural events, and some of the, of the great heroes and heroines of that time. And one of the people that I write about uh, is a woman named Mary Pinchot Meyer, who came from a, a very distinguished Washington East Coast family. Now, I, I didn't know who she was when she came up to Harvard. and hung, we, we had a lot of people at Harvard come through and would uh, take courses with us, and sometimes at Millbrook, too, they'd come through, and we checked them out, and they seemed to be well-balanced, uh, you know, people. We would train them and so forth. And she was part of uh, this group of people. It was only later that I found out who she was. Her name was Mary Pinchot Meyer, and for 32 months, she was the mistress of Jack Kennedy. It's also... Uh, become, become obvious from many, many uh, uh, reports uh, that she was bringing uh, drugs, uh, psychedelic drugs, into the White House and taking them with Jack Kennedy in his later years, and that uh, there's more and more evidence uh, uh, coming out, particularly now in 1983, which is the 20th anniversary of Jack Kennedy's assassination. More stories are... You know, uh, the real story of the Kennedy situation is locked in the files. It's not supposed to be out in 50 years, is it? Do you know? I'm not sure, but I know for a long time. Yeah, probably something like that. So, but more of the stuff is coming out, and uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Jack Kennedy, uh, in his last months, was really going through a change of philosophy. We know that he was uh, thinking of uh, pulling our people out of Vietnam. We know that he was angry at the CIA uh, after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, then tracking what happened with Bobby, uh, you know, it's no accident for that Bobby. Uh, 
three or four years later, suddenly becomes a spokesperson for young people and uh, grows his hair and becomes the most powerful anti-war person. There's an enormous amount of evidence uh, coming out now that Jack Kennedy was going through all sorts of changes uh, uh, politically and uh, I might use the word spiritually or certainly psychologically. And uh, I raise, uh, I, I describe the story of Mary Pinchot Meyer and the interesting thing about Mary Pitcher Meyer was, I didn't know it then, but it came out later, that she had been married to a man named Cord Meyer, Jr. Now, Cord Meyer, Jr. was a man that I knew when I was after World War II. Uh, turns out that Cord Meyer, Jr., you probably never heard, how many have ever heard of Cord Meyer, Jr.? Yeah. He turns out to be one of the original uh, CIA, CIA youngsters, and over the years he's become the Mr. Chips of the CIA. He's probably the most single important CIA person in the history of that dubious organization. And he's notorious as being the most hard-line, the most fanatic, the most violently uh, dogmatic uh, person that never listens to anyone that's convinced of his mission. And the mission of the uh, America is to somehow lock in some eternal love hate relationship with his counterparts in the KGB. Uh, now, Mary Pinchot Meyer, my friend, uh, had been married to him. She was, therefore, a runaway CIA wife. Uh, a year after Jack Kennedy's assassination, she was assassinated on the Chesapeake and Ohio towpath in Washington. Uh, rather mysterious death because she was shot twice in the head and once in the uh, body. Uh, she was not carrying a purse. Uh, there was no apparent motive. Uh, they never found the gun. They never found the assassin. The thing kind of just covered up the fact that Kennedy's mistress uh, and the wife of a CIA official was killed this way. Uh, I'm very interested in cover-ups. I have no, by the way, I, I, I'm, I am not a great conspiracy buff. I don't know who killed Kennedy. I'm not implying any of that, but I'm, I'm suggesting that there are incredible cover-ups here. And uh, as a scientist and as, a, as an intelligent American, I want to know, uh, you know. And it gets very much involved. I had a lot of trouble in even mentioning some of this stuff in my book. And uh, the, with the legal staff of my publishers, I had to censor several pages about the stuff I'm talking about now. And... Uh, well, I won't go on, but you're going to hear the name Mary Pinchomeyer a lot, I think, in the next few months as uh, we learn more about Jack Kennedy in his last years. Hi. Do you really think that we evolved that far from the amoeba? Well, first I have three questions. My first question is, do you really think we evolved that far from the amoeba? My second question is, I'm around youth a lot myself. To me, they, they seem to be so caught up in the bureaucracy. And I was wondering, with our advanced forms of communication and our our um, games we have out, computer games, if somehow they're going to take on and they're going to be locked in the same dogma that our leaders are presently following. And my third question is, do you, do you think if, if as a society we uh, seen God as a woman, we'd still have wars? It, no, as a society, if we seen God as a woman, would we still have wars? Well, let's ask Maggie Thatcher. Huh? <laughs> it's true that uh, two of the most su successful um, kick-ass uh, uh, leaders in the last uh, 10 years have been women, Indira Gandhi uh, and uh, Mrs. Thatcher. But there, again, it's age. Now, I hate to be uh, repetitious here, but the answer to most questions have to do with age. Uh, and... Uh, 
The, uh, the first question was, will the younger generation, when they get into power, become bureaucratic, like the old generations? That's what the conservatives are counting on, saying, ha, well, we're going to get them, we'll co-op them, ha, 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 we'll dangle a little power in front of them, and they'll become just like us. Well, um, good luck. I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think that, uh, oh, granted, 76 million of you, you better believe there are a lot of military macho assholes among you. I'm not denying that. <laughs> when, when I debate Gordon Liddy at colleges, there are a lot of ROTC guys with crew cuts in the front saying, you know, nuke Mother Teresa. Uh, um, so I'm not suggesting that all 76 million of you are Buddhas <laughs> or, or Einsteins uh, uh, or Joan of Arcs, but the, the basic... The basic mythos and uh, the basic essential reality imprints of a generation comes during their adolescent years. Now, Ronnie Reagan and Tip O'Neill's adolescent years, their 60s hero was, you know what I'm going to say, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was the great macho hero of that generation. About, you know, 1906, 1908, 1910. Good old Teddy Roosevelt. He went down to Cuba and he kicked ass and he defeated the Spanish there. And then he got to be president and he carried a big stick. The, the headline in the, the cover of Time magazine says, Big Stick, just last week. I mean, it's so obvious that uh, then uh, talk about Nicaragua. Give me a, give me a break. <laughs> uh, Teddy Roosevelt went down there. He wanted the Panama Canal, and he said to Columbia, get out. I'm just going to take it. You know, I'll show you who's boss. It's been a recurrent malarial fever, Caribbean fever, president since uh, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, if you want to show you're tough and strong, bully the, bully the Latin Americans. That's, uh, so, it's, um, but, but the younger generation, your heroes are not Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, he's a, he's a real joker, that Teddy Roosevelt, running around, you know, safaris in, in Africa and so forth. Um, your heroes are people like Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Bob Dylan, Jack Kerouac, uh, Ken Kesey, you know. Uh, your heroes are your, your basic generational adolescent um, um, realities uh, are, I think, much more individualistic and questioning of authority. And uh, I'm going to continue to, um, to tell your generation, to remind you of this, and uh, to, to look around, and you're going to find. Uh, I believe it true that um, that uh, when uh, if we could have a 37 or 8 year old, or a 40 year old in 1988 or 1990, we had a 40 year old young uh, cabinet of American men and women. You know, going over the Soviet Union, you know, <laughs> with those geriatric dinosaurs there. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think they really are going to make a difference. Yeah, people say anything to go along. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's certainly a, a, uh, a problem in, in human nature, uh, social contagion and docility. Uh, I simply... I'm convinced that your generation is more skeptical, more realistic, and, you, and if, if a bunch of your generation are saying, hey, yeah, it'd be nice to have a man on a white horse come along, isn't that great? I think there are enough of you that say, hey, you crazy? You know, and if not, I'm going to be around <laughs> reminding you, uh, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters. (laughs) 
And even though it's uh, been 25 years since a good Dr. Leary made that statement, I think it's still good advice. But uh, isn't it a shame that uh, Timothy Leary's hope and faith in the baby boomers uh, turning things around was so badly misplaced? From where I stand, uh, it looks to me like the baby boomers, uh, like little Georgie Bush, have uh, just made a bigger mess of things. Granted, uh, the world isn't as tightly screwed down as it was when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s, and uh, there no longer is a draft, but we've still got a long way to go before we see anything uh, close to a free and just society with leaders that we can trust. Now, I did edit out a, a few of his comments about the political situation at the time, but I tried to leave in enough to uh, give you the flavor of the times without uh, covering what now is ancient history. Uh, however, I kept his entire rap about the Republicans being mean people uh, <laughs> because from an historical perspective, uh, I think it's interesting that uh, 25 years before the end of uh, what has now been eight years of mean Republican hell, that uh, Dr. Leary was so perceptive. I can only imagine what he'd be saying right now after uh, so firmly stating that age is the key to politics. We'll uh, just have to stay tuned to see how things turn out with young Mr. Obama. And did you notice that uh, Dr. Leary mentioned the word neoteny? You know, when I, I heard Terrence McKenna talk about that concept in my last podcast, uh, it was the first time I remember ever hearing the word. Uh, now we hear Timothy Leary talking about the same thing a good uh, 15 years or so before Terrence uh, did in that one recording. And, and I'm not suggesting that Terrence was copying or borrowing or anything like that. What I'm impressed with is the uh, wide range of Timothy Leary's knowledge and the synchronicity of the two of them mentioning the same relatively obscure concept in uh, two very randomly selected lectures. Well, uh, there are several other things I feel like I should mention right now, but to tell the truth, I'm uh, finding it a little difficult to get back into the groove after the disruption of the holidays. Although it uh, hasn't been holiday time for all of our fellow saloners, I do suspect that the last two weeks have been uh, somewhat disruptive uh, anyway due to so many people who actually do to get into the uh, holiday spirit. And uh, now we've all got to take stock and uh, look forward to this new year we've just begun. That said, uh, it's still going to take another week or so for me to get up to speed once again. So instead of uh, me rambling on a while longer, I'm going to close for today and get this podcast posted, at least to iTunes, uh, which reminds me that <laughs> I forgot to post the program notes for my last podcast, and uh, I'll try to get that done in the next day or so along with the ones for today's podcast. I know a lot of people don't uh, subscribe through the RSS feed, and so they most likely don't know that a, a new program's been available since Christmas Eve. Uh, now, if I was uh, into New Year's resolutions, I'd resolve to post my program notes sooner. But uh, knowing my past history with New Year's resolutions, uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't keep it very long. So uh, now that I no longer make these false promises to myself, I, I do feel better about life. But uh, I guess that in order to get this New Year off properly, uh, I'd probably better come clean with you about something that has... Uh, provided much merriment to my family, and uh, <laughs> and that is my Facebook account. As you know, uh, about a month ago, my youngest son more or less shamed me into uh, setting up a Facebook page, 
And I've been resisting that for a long time, uh, primarily due to my experience of being kicked off of uh, MySpace for uh, reasons I still don't understand. But I finally relented and uh, signed up for an account. But uh, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking that we'd better be really discreet this time so that the the little behind-the-scenes censors don't panic and delete my account. So uh, what name or pseudonym should I use, I wondered. But uh, I finally decided to just go with my name, Lorenzo Haggerty. Uh, At least that was my original plan. Now, if you've uh, searched for me on Facebook under Lorenzo or my former first name, Lawrence... You won't find me. And uh, the reason is that on Facebook, and only on Facebook, I'm uh, spelling my first name L-A-W-R-E-N-Z-O. Sort of a kludge between Lawrence and Lorenzo. Now, uh, some of the enterprising uh, people who actually did find me on Facebook uh, have speculated that I was uh, playing on the fact that I was once a lawyer or or that uh, some of my friends, uh, like Gene Stoloroff, uh, like to pronounce my name Lorenzo. <laughs> and uh, a few people have speculated that I did this uh, just to throw people off and uh, that you've really got to search to find me there because I'm trying uh, this time to keep a low profile. And uh, all of those reasons uh, work for me, actually. But it was uh, a close friend uh, who wasn't afraid to state the truth to me. He said, uh, My God, Lorenzo, writing your first name is as automatic as it gets. You must have been really stoned. (laughs) And so the truth is finally known. You know, I can actually remember seeing the warning notice that said I could uh, change any of the original information I submitted except my name. And uh, I actually remember reading that, but uh, I didn't bother to check my name, of course, because uh, that's so automatic, right? (laughs) Well, not when you're overly stoned, it isn't so automatic. And uh, now I'm going to circle around to an actual point to this confession. Uh, About the same time that I realized the mistake I'd made, Charlie Grobe sent me an article about uh, some research that showed that cannabis may be of uh, some benefit in holding off the ravages of dementia and Alzheimer's, which uh, is very good news if it proves to be true. However, uh, in the case of us old guys who are heavy cannabis users, uh, it at least provides a good cover. I can't say for sure whether my screw-up was caused by carelessness, uh, confusion, old age, dementia, or whatever. But if you're an old stoner, uh, no one thinks about those conditions when you do something silly. (laughs) They just uh, react like my friend and conclude that I was really, really stoned. Now, maybe I'm uh, starting to lose some of my mental faculties, uh, although I don't think so myself. But in any event, it's going to be very difficult for my friends to figure out whether I'm going batty or uh, just enjoying some primo herb. (laughs) So there's the truth about why only the most dedicated among us have been able to find me on Facebook. So I hope I've uh, provided you with a little laugh at my expense to get your year going. And uh, stay tuned, because (laughs) I have a feeling that I'm going to have much more foolishness uh, to report about myself in the months ahead. But until then, uh, keep the old faith and stay high, as Terrence says. Now, uh, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the uh, bottom of our Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts, uh, assuming I get going and get them done. (laughs) 
Anyhow, uh, Happy New Year. I'm glad you're still with us, and I look forward to many good times ahead with you this year. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.